Hey, 99 Pages, it's Rajiv, and I've got an inspiring episode for you today. We are speaking with world-renowned endurance athlete, Charlie Engel. He's the author of a brilliant memoir called Running Man. Now, you might remember Charlie from his documentary with Matt Damon, where he was featured running across the Sahara Desert. He's run hundreds of marathons, ultra marathons, and some of the most grueling adventure races in the world. But you know what? He also happens to be a recovered addict of both alcohol, powder, and crack cocaine. And surprise, he also spent nearly two years in prison. But maybe not for what you'd expect. We'll cover that in the show in just a moment. You know, Charlie is a man that simultaneously puts himself through hell and back and then finds himself thrown back into Hades to make the trip again. Uh, in those struggles where he developed a deep passion for prison reform and a rich perspective on the human condition, uh, he has grown to become one of my personal heroes. It was an honor to discuss his life with him. So you can tell from his voice, he's a man of deep value and conviction. He's humble, sincere, passionate. I can't wait for you to hear this show. And if you do enjoy the episode, please consider sharing it with your friends and rating 99 Pages on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Those help us out a ton. Thanks and enjoy the show. This was the hardest interview I think I've ever had to prepare for mm. because your story, we could talk about addiction. We could talk about adventure racing. We could talk about the financial crisis fallout and how it was unfairly applied to many Americans, yourself included. Uh, we could talk about prison reform, sentencing reform, and how the system took you in. And it was not this like very fair, magnanimous process. There were personalities. There, were, there was real trauma you experienced. That uh, for anyone who is a lesser man would have walked out there more broken than they would have entered. Um, and honestly, I just want to start off by asking you to maybe introduce yourself to our listeners. And I, I would love to hear in your own words how you would crystallize your story. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> no, thanks for that. And I mean, look, it's it's um, you read the book, and I really am grateful that you did that. And uh, I will say through the years, I've learned to tell a very truncated version of my story uh, to most people because they don't have the, not that they're not interested, but I respect the fact that most people just kind of don't have the capacity or interest <laughs> to know more about um, the details and the nuance of the way things happen. And, I, I, and to start at the middle... You know, I ended up uh, in prison, as you have pointed out, in very unlikely circumstances at, uh, through a very unfair set of things that happened to me. Yet, I will say, I'm not a religious person per se, but I'm certain that the universe uh, decided to put me there and in that position so that I could see what true unfairness really looks like. <laughs> Because for me, it was almost embarrassing to tell people what I was in prison for, and I'll come. I'll, we'll wind back around to that a little bit later. And uh, while I was surrounded by people who um, were there, in many cases, though, for equally unlikely or certainly more unfair things. I mean, 
we'll get into maybe some of the conspiracy laws and, you know, because of my background in addiction and recovery and all the work that I've done in, in addiction recovery personally and professionally, um, <laughs> I have a deeper understanding of how damaging uh, the prison system is, both federal and state and county, uh, when it comes to, and for those who can't see me, I'm using air quotes to say treating addiction because it's not, it's not treatment. It's not even punishment. It's just inhumane, um, ignorance and, and essentially it's, um, uh, it's just ignoring people, you know, it's basically putting them in a situation and prison itself is supposed to be the punishment, but then the conditions in the prison actually end up exacerbating that, you know, tenfold. But I, right now I'm in North Carolina. I'm in Durham, North Carolina, ironically, which is where I wasn't born here, but I did kind of grow up here for several years of my, of my youth. And as you read in the book, I'm, I'm all, I'm less than a mile from the, where the house was that was a hundred year old house when I was, you know, eight years old. And, uh, you know, and I remember running around in the woods and it was all cow pastures surrounded. My parents were both in college at UNC still. And I was just a little hippie kid and definitely uh, an outcast of sorts because it was a fairly middle class, working class, you know, area. There was nothing here. I mean, this is the beginnings of what was called the Research Triangle Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you probably are familiar with um, in your business. And, you know, so a lot of tech was coming to this area. Now, of course, it's like nothing but tech all over the place. But, you know, I'm kind of in the same area right here where I grew up. And um, my parents were super young. My, you know, my mom was in theater. And so I was surrounded by adults and a lot of drinking and drugs and But it was, I'm not excusing it, but it was 60s drinking and drugs. It was love and peace and, you know, it wasn't partying for partying's sake necessarily. It was just friggin' Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin on the radio and speakers in the front window and every piece of clothing was tie-dyed and, uh, you know, it was Woodstock times and... So it was a pretty unique period of time, but we were like a lot of people, we were incredibly poor, but as a kid, I didn't really know that, you know, as a kid, you're not totally aware of your circumstances very often. I mean, I knew we didn't have what other families had, but I couldn't have put the word like poor to it. We were just, my parents were just college students, you know, and that was all there was to it. And so um, there wasn't ever a lot in the refrigerator. And and uh, I tell this story in the book where, uh, you know, one night at a, one of the par- parties that are going on, you know, I just wandered around while everybody was outside and there was nothing in the fridge. And I picked up a beer and I drank, you know, like two thirds of a beer. And, and um, you know, that sort of warm, floaty feeling. I mean, as an eight-year-old, two-thirds of a beer, you know, probably kicked my ass. But, uh, you know, I I knew in that moment, what I say in the book is that, that, that alcohol planted a flag in my brain at that moment and claimed that territory for itself. Yeah. And it's not like I got up the next day and drank. I was a kid. But I knew that deep down that 
you know, alcohol was going to play a role in my life and that, you know, it would be there for me later. And, you know, you flash forward and I, I ended up doing great in high school. I moved in with my dad. My parents were divorced and all of this. And um, student body president, um, big high school, predominantly black. And I was the first white student body president in the history of the school and a couple thousand students. And played the sports and dated cheerleaders and made good grades. And I went to Carolina as a 17 year old freshman. And I, I was like, you know, I'm going to be the same in college. Right. And I get to college. And of course I am, I find out immediately that I am incredibly average. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's, everybody's got a good resume and every 4,000 other freshmen are, you know, equal to me. And the drinking age was still 18. And what I found out really fast was that I was an exceptional drinker, not something to aspire to, but that was just a fact. And I could drink more than anybody else. And and it was the 80s, or as I like to call it, you know, the cocaine decade. And, you know, and when I was first introduced to cocaine, you know, it was, uh, it was absolutely love at first sight. And I knew, I knew it was going to be trouble. And you know, and it was. And, um, you know, I spent 10 years fighting this battle of drinking and cocaine and a lot of binging. And I would move to a new city, flunked out of school, of course, and I'd move to a new city and start over again and be the top salesman in the country for Toyota or for a fitness chain or whatever. And then I would just shit on all of that and, you know, drive it into the ground and have to move somewhere else and start over. And, yeah. As the old saying goes, you know, only one thing was consistent. You know, I took me everywhere I went and <laughs> and I wasn't aware yet that I was the problem. So, I mean, this is something that I think I, I really grappled with here because you were pursuing excellence and achieving excellence in multiple domains at the same time, whether it be car sales. You even started your own business, mm-hmm. uh, dent repair mm-hmm. for when like hailstorms would hit, you know, towns around the world, mm-hmm. and you would get called in with your crew to repair these vehicles. You started a very successful business. You were pursuing excellence in in business in, as a salesperson, but also in drinking and the pursuit of that feeling that a that only a drug can give you. And I'm curious, is it the same? habit is it the same voice in your head speaking in both of these pursuits not then not back in those days in my 20s you know the fact of the matter is uh my joke was always that the boss won't fire the top salesperson that turned out not to be true uh as i learned multiple times but (laughs) you know the fact is my attitude was if I was a top salesperson and I was paying the bills and I was buying a house and getting married and and paying for cars, like I couldn't possibly be, how can you say I've got a problem? You know, right. If I can balance it on this side by overachieving on the other side, that to me justified my behavior. And, you know, look, it, it, Absolutely, though, to answer your question, it's all part and parcel of the same pieces of my personality, you know, and we'll talk a little bit later about addiction and what, how it drives people and how it shapes the way you think. And, you know, it's presented very often as a disease. But I will say, 
you know, for me, without the addictive part of my nature, you know, I probably wouldn't have ever been successful at anything. So it's like a it's a superpower if you can harness it and point it, you know, towards the right things like running, like endurance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's I want to really go deeper into this addiction concept, because as you said, I think it is the foundation for a lot of the other chapters in your story. Um, So we're 40 years from 1980, the crack decade, cocaine decade, 20 years into an opioid epidemic. And it feels like the concept of addiction continues to be misunderstood and criminalized instead of diagnosed. Your writing on your experience with addiction is vivid, it's nuanced. Um, So in your opinion, what is it about addiction that we as a society aren't getting? Like, can you help us like those of us who aren't exposed to those to addicts, like yeah. how did we wrap our head around what addiction really is? Yeah. Well, first of all, yes. Thanks for that great question. And I, I look, addiction is based in trauma. I mean, it's really not. It, it's more complicated than that. But I grew up even in my early years of sobriety. Um, I learned through AA rehab, other programs. I learned that. Addiction, uh, addiction was a disease. And I, I will just tell you, 31 years into my sobriety, my I don't view it the same way now. And, you know, my views are a little they're not controversial, but they ve- they are very science based. There's a there's a wonderful man named Gaber Mate. If anybody wants to look him up, M-A-T-E and Gaber is G-A-B-O-R. Gaber Mate is mid. 80s. Um, he was a survivor. He's a Hungarian Jew, survived the concentration camps as a kid. And his latest book is called The Myth of Normal. <laughs> and he's just such a brilliant guy who really has helped me understand that even my own struggles with addiction are, are certainly, sure, there's some genetics. Fourth generation addict, you know, I am. So a lot of addiction and mostly drinking in my family before me. But there's also trauma. Things that I didn't think actually should have affected me. Divorce. Well, how many families get divorced? I mean, like at least half of American families go through a divorce. And so I was very young. My parents got divorced. My father left. He went in the army and I didn't see him for many years. Um, A lot of other just crazy, but fairly typical things happened to me as a youth. I was an only child. I really grew up incredibly lonely yeah. uh, is what I've come to understand. And not for nothing. I've been, a, I've been a father for all of two and a half years. I got a two and a half year old and a six month old. And I'll tell you that I can already just tell, like if my wife and I got divorced, that would ruin their lives. Yeah. Like just, I think it's so interesting that Simply just because something is normalized, like divorce, we yeah. treat it like it shouldn't be trauma. But yeah. actually, that's a really serious thing yeah. to happen yeah. to a young kid. It, it is. But I would also point out to you the flip side. If a marriage has fallen apart for whatever reason, and to so many people, quote unquote, stay together for the kids, and what they end up doing is providing an unloving example for the kids 
you know, so what damage does that do also? They, they learn, they see they're so much more intuitive than we give them credit for. So That's a great counterpoint. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I just, so I think that there's, you know, there's arguments on both sides, but the fact of the matter is <laughs> we all screw up our kids. <laughs> our parents screwed us up. I mean, there's no, that's part of just being human, but that trauma, so that trauma in me basically ended up, you know, I was a lonely person who overachieved and was like in high school, especially like I became, you know, that that like I just I wanted everybody to like me like I just wanted everybody to like me and that's that's the fact and that pretty much worked out that way but I did it not that that's not a decent goal to aspire to but I did it in a way that didn't necessarily serve me <laughs> so my growth didn't really happen because I was people pleasing and I was I was mostly focused on trying to you know make other people happy and so you know for me uh, that, and for most people, that kind of trauma that we grow up with, um, whatever form that might take has a huge impact on whether or not we end up being a person who uses drugs, alcohol, pornography, social media. I mean, to tell you the truth, you know, people, you know, there's the main, there's the main like addiction issues, which tend to be drugs and alcohol, but holy cow gambling pornography sex and you know our these yeah right here you know oh, these are the most... another one that i'm really interested in right now is the addiction to work yeah you know totally. people get so enamored with yeah, their totally. jobs their linkedin headlines their uh totally. well i travel yeah. you know and i travel the world i'm happy to say and i've had the good fortune to see other cultures i i think very much about central and south america where you know, by our standards, people have very little, you mm -hmm. know, but what they have is close, tight knit, loving families. And, you know, they, their happiness level, uh, which is also reflected in their longevity, uh, as just human beings being alive and the lower stress. I mean, there's just zero doubt that their lives are better than most of ours, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and that's a big, you know, that's a big deal. It's a societal issue. Um, you know, and, and look, well, you go ahead. I mean, I know you I know you've got a couple other questions, but I want to get into certainly the differences between, uh, you know, the people that I saw in prison and, uh, you know, myself in prison and, and what I think is the, uh, you know, the crux of the issue. I really want to get into that before we do, though, just because your book is called Running Man. That's true. I got to ask you a couple <laughs> questions about endurance racing. I mean, like mind boggling stuff. Bad like you're racing through Badlands, 125 miles in the in the in the desert uh, in Death Valley, uh, adventure racing through Ecuador. You're climbing these majestic mountains, the deserts of the Sahara. Uh, you have put your body through murderous physical challenges. It is unreal. So I got to ask, you know, when you get close to that breaking point, right? Like I'm no, I'm a, I'm, I'm an aspiring uh, endurance runner, if you will. I'm doing 10 milers, half marathons. Uh, I have run some marathons in the past. Uh, I'm trying to work back up to that. Uh, but I hit a breaking point, you know, where I'm like, man, my body is in my knees are shackling like 
I'm curious, when you get that feeling that you can't go further, how do you tell yourself to push through that pain? Are you, are you kind and are you a good, loving coach to yourself? Are you punishing? Like, what's going on in that head of yours? I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag. But I mean, early in my sobriety, I had been a runner in high school and even through college and even through my addiction years, you know, when I would clean up for periods of time, I would use running as a tool to help me get healthy again. And I would be on this, you know, roller coaster ride of, of not drinking and using and then diving back down into the abyss. And I always use running as part of the, um, my way to get healthy again. But what I learned was two things. Running is a great way to punish yourself. So there certainly was um, a good amount of uh, sort of self-flagellation where I, I was making myself hurt on purpose um, in a way that I felt like I deserved, you know, because, of course, as an addict, I felt uh, ashamed and embarrassment and the, the things I screwed up and the relationships I messed up and all of those things I felt, you know, responsible for. So there's carrying that around. Then there's also what I recognized, you know, very early on is that suffering, uh, anybody who's ever read a single book uh, or, or about, you know, the Buddha or any sort of Buddhism, uh, in particular, every religion probably, but in particular Buddhism, focuses a lot on the value of suffering. And just inherently, I understood that the harder the situation that I put myself in, and if I could find a way to fight through that physical situation. And I mean, I call that because it is chosen suffering. Like I did it on purpose. I entered this event. <laughs> I went to go do it. I knew it was going to be hard. And like, that's different than the things that fall out of the sky, you know, on our heads in life, you know, car accidents, disease, maybe even arrest or imprisonment, like these things, you know, may come out of nowhere, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I enter these events because I knew I was going to go there to suffer. That's why I was there, because I valued the lessons that would come from it. And I understood very early on, that, let's even just take a marathon of which yeah. I ran hundreds in my life. You know, if you can get through, marathons are, you know, I did so many of them that it wasn't about like trying to go faster or break a record or do anything like that. But it was about reaching that point in the race because it happened every single time where it might be mile 15, 17, 18, 21, where I'm going, what the F is wrong with you? <laughs> like, what is your problem? Why did you think this was a good idea again? Do you just forget? Do you, are you stupid? Like, I mean, all this, like, you know, negative self-talk. And, and the point is, that's the only part of the race that I actually end up remembering. It's the only part that I connect to. Because the lessons, if I calm down, I take a beat. You know, if I've taught my kids any lesson at all, I've said it for decades. You know, don't ever make a big decision at a, at a particularly low moment. Like, let that moment slide by. Let it pass because it will get better. So in the case of like running a marathon, and this is a good metaphor for other parts of life, it means um, drinking something, eating something, probably slowing down a little bit and walking. And if I can do that for a few minutes, I get some calories in me, I take the pressure off and I do that for a few minutes, 
my pain may go from a 10 to an 8. But when you're at a 10, an 8 is a huge difference. And, you know, and all of a sudden you can see yourself continuing. And so this translates well to your business life, translates well to your marriage or your relationship, because we all we all take those deeply painful moments and we project them into the future and assume that it's always going to feel this way. You know, you take the worst argument you've ever had with your spouse and like we you know, they're ugly, they're embarrassing. <laughs> we hope nobody else ever hears about them. But like you take that that sort of deep moment, you know, of uh of shame almost that you you because you've said stuff you wish you hadn't said and all that and you 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 project that out into the future and you think this relationship's always going to be that way. But you know that's actually not the case. If you'll if you'll find a way to let the pressure calm down, get a good night's sleep, wake up the next day, almost always a, a there's a release of all that pressure and you feel better. So there's two there's two kind of concepts that I'm extracting from this part of your book and your story. One is I feel what you you have straddled throughout your story is this this uh, when you say the word chosen suffering what what goes through my mind is a the fine line between productive adversity you know where you're challenging yourself you're going through something difficult but you're gaining a lot from that experience those lessons that that fine line between productive adversity versus destructive trauma yeah. where the the challenge is actually traumatic and it's counterproductive to a healthy life. And it's, it's interesting how, whether through addiction or running, you have managed to sort of, you know, find that fine line and solidify it in a really inspiring way uh, between productive adversity versus destructive trauma. Uh, the other lesson that I'm taking from it is even just the way you're describing that metaphor of how you're thinking through the marathon. If I can slow down just a little bit, take a little bit of calories in, get some hydration. I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And uh, whether it's in a relationship, in a business setting, it it feels like that sort of mentality of, hey, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I got to be ready for this long haul, let alone a 125-mile desert race or running across the Sahara Desert in Africa. You got to be preparing yourself for that long haul with a lot of patience and wisdom. Yeah. Uh, really you learned all that at West Point. So I, I, I know you're, you know, I, I spend tons of time working with, uh, you know, veterans groups and a lot of special forces folks and a lot of, a lot of people who were, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, these are learned, you know, you can learn these habits that, can stop you from overreacting in a situation either emotionally or physically and i think the 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 point that you're making and that i that i hopefully made is the more often you voluntarily put yourself into distress <laughs> the more comfortable you get with not panicking when the wheels come off because they're going to come off if you're running a long way or you're biking or you're rucking rucking is a big thing these days like it doesn't matter what you're doing like eventually you're going to hit a point where things get very difficult duh as what i always tell people it's like that's actually that's the reason you're out there if it, if it were 
you know, if it were easy and there was no lesson to be learned, then what would be the point? Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, uh, if there was one thing I learned in the army, it was the value of my freedom and the value of my, uh, let's call it self-direction. And it's part of the reason why in my personal life, I've gotten really interested and involved in the issue of mass incarceration and prison reform. And, you know, when you open the book, uh, I actually thought you were going to end up in prison because of something related to your drug addiction. Mm. I mean, it was almost like you kind of teed it up like that. Yeah. But I was horrified, dumbfounded, demoralized to learn the real reason. Could we take a minute and we don't have to go into into a, a huge degree of detail, but would you mind explaining, I would say the the reasons, but the explanation yeah. of, yeah. of how yeah. you ended up in prison? Yeah. Well, I'm even going to take a step back and I, I don't I don't want to preempt any other questions, but I'll just say, you know, I, I went through this progression as a runner and an adventure athlete of becoming pretty good at what I did, becoming more well known. As you know, uh, I became the senior producer for a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition oh, yeah. for a number of years, um, which was the biggest show on TV for a while. And so that was a few years. And um, and I became one of the top ultra distance runners in the world. I was winning a lot of races. And so in a very small world that only insiders knew of, I was becoming um, known at least. And then I came up with this idea of going to the Sahara Desert and being the first person to actually run all the way across Africa. And through a series of crazy things, you know, I end up partnered with Matt Damon and Matt executive produces this project. And he's the narrator of the film called Running the Sahara, which you can still get on iTunes if you want to check it out um, for like three bucks. So it's a bargain. Um And, you know, and we complete this run. I put together a team, you know, we complete like maybe one of the most difficult uh, physical undertakings of all time. We we ran uh, two marathons every day for 111 consecutive days uh, without taking a day off. And we went all the way from Senegal to the Red Sea in Egypt. And, uh, you know, with that... That event, and I co-founded a clean water nonprofit with Matt Damon called water.org. And, you know, that event really put me on the map is what I like to say. You know, it, at least in small town Greensboro, North Carolina, and maybe around the rest of the country in the running community, you know, I became a known entity. And um, I bought a property in 2005, an investment property, and I never made a lot of money, but I, when I got money, I would usually buy something in real estate. I'd buy a little rental property or I'd, I'd get something that I could hold on to for a few years and then sell it. And like, it was a great way, of course, to make extra money. And in the early 2000s, everybody thought they were a real estate genius um, because basically, you know, if you could get a a pulse. If you had a pulse, you could get a loan. And, um, you know, and there was one property that I actually, when the housing market collapsed, that I let go back to the bank and, you know, it was never going to come back. Like, so I lost my down payment, which was about 200,000. I lost, you know, all the money that I had spent paying for it over the course of a few years. And I lost my good credit. I had great credit. 
But it was just one of those things. It was very expensive property and I wasn't going to keep spending thousands of dollars a month on a property that, you know, wasn't ever going to be worth what I owed on it. So that's a long build up to this. Um, an IRS agent in Greensboro, North Carolina saw running the Sahara, the film. And based on that alone, this is in 2008, on that alone, he decided to open an investigation in 2009 into my taxes. And this is all, I know all of this because, and, and I'm sure people listening to this, there's a lot of sophisticated legal people uh, who have gone through the system or whatever it may be. And so I was entitled to, I find all this out in discovery because I decide I'm going to go to the to trial. I have been charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. Mm-hmm. I become the only person in the United States in 2010 to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I can be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. And the point of the story around the Sahara and all of that is I, I, I basically had just enough notoriety to make me interesting to the feds and didn't have nearly enough money to defend myself. Because, you, you know, you needed minimum $500,000 to hire a white collar attorney to handle this kind of sophisticated case. And of course, I couldn't afford that. So I had a public defender. And you know, I decided to go to trial and because I knew that I, I, I knew that I hadn't done what I was being accused of. At trial, my mortgage broker gets on the stand and he actually admits to falsifying a loan application in my name. He filled out a loan application, signed my name to it and put it in the closing package. Like most people, it's like, okay, game over. Like that's it. Like the problem is, I signed this closing package that included this falsified document and I put it in the mail, you know, to uh, the closing attorney and that became mail fraud. Yeah. Uh, and, didn't and matter. Way, if I can just for our listeners, yeah. anyone who's bought a home knows that you're, it's like a, a stack of papers, hundreds yeah. of pages deep with little sticky tabs where they say sign here. Right. And you're just going through your it's and I'm not saying that you and, and by this time, you know, the home buying and qualification process is long enough where you've reviewed a lot of terms. You know what your yeah. interest rate is, you know what your amortization schedule is. You're like, I can like you had no reason. And I think most of us, when we go to close, we don't have any major reason to read it, you know, very scrupulously every single word on those yeah. 150 pages. So you sign them, you mail them. And you're now you're in, now you're being accused of mail fraud in the process. Yeah, so they they find me not guilty of the main charge, which is providing false information on a loan application because I didn't, and the jury understood that I didn't. But they had no choice but to find me guilty of mail fraud. I had a guideline sentence of about five years, and the judge actually ended up giving me a downward departure because he knew, I mean, he knew, it was very clear he knew what a bunch of BS this was. And he um, made the decision to give me 21 months. Uh, You know, I was sentenced to Beckley Federal Correctional Institute in Beckley, West Virginia, which is pretty much hell on earth. And um, Yeah. And I mean, we can in a minute, we'll talk about why I got a downward departure too. you know, as a middle aged white guy and what might happen to somebody else. But 
Um, you know, Valentine's Day 2011, my kids, my two teenage boys dropped me off at the front gate of prison, or as I like to call it, you know, the, wor- the world's worst summer camp. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I began my 21-month sentence, you know, everybody probably listening to this already knows you get a 15% discount up front, you know, for technically for good behavior. So I was going to be there for 18 months. And if I got lucky, I would get out. I ultimately ended up getting out after about 16 and into a halfway house, which is, you know, that's all pretty normal. um, The way that progression worked. Halfway house was actually way worse than prison. We we, we may get to that, but they're, they're the, you know, because I was in a camp, you know, I was in a, I was in a place, you know, and all the camps and lows are set up next to mediums or high security facilities so that those facilities can have free labor. You know, uh, the, the lows, you know, cook the food and cut the grass and do all of that kind of maintenance. And so you, you basically have built in, uh, labor and, but anyway, I got to prison and, and, and I think this is, you know, this is maybe the most important part of, of my story where we're involved. You know, I was pissed. I mean, I was, yeah, I was a little scared, but I mean, I'd spent 10 years friggin' smoking crack on the streets and, you know, I'd seen my share of, of stuff. And so I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't my first time to, to feel this sort of fear, but going to prison, that had never happened to me. Um, and I was certainly a little scared and I was sad, certainly for my kids, but I was more than anything, I was supremely pissed off about what I saw as, you know, what had been done to me. Like this was such an injustice. And, um, as you saw in the book, uh, my friend who became my friend, pick and roll, (laughs) who was also (laughs) from Greensboro, North Carolina, um, shows me, he's showing me around, you know, and he's a short African American, you know, heavy set guy. And like, we're about 10 minutes into him kind of giving me the lay of the land. He looks at me and he's like, Engel, he's like, what's your bid? I'm like, uh, and he, he gets frustrated. He's like, how long will you be here? Because <laughs> I didn't know what bid meant. I didn't know any of the lingo. And I said, uh, 21 months. He's, and he stops and he's like, shit. That's not even long enough to unpack your bags. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that began my education in, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think in just an understanding of perspective, you know, I began to understand right away that, um, you know, fair or unfair comes in a lot of different packages. And the first guy that I became real friends with was the he was African-American in his early 60s in the cell next to me. And, you know, he got a 25 year sentence for very small amount of crack cocaine. And it was basically a third strike thing. And like, you know, he got his whole life taken away for some nonsense. Uh, And, you know, the crack laws that we talked about were, you know, a hundred times, hundred to one sentencing guidelines over powder cocaine. And, you know, that's, you know, all the racial implications are just so profound in those cases. And, you know, and I began to understand that, you know, fair or unfair didn't matter anymore. I was going to be in prison for a year and a half, and it was up to me to figure out who I was going to be in that place. 
Wow. I mean, uh, this, uh, this is the hardest part of dealing with prison reform and sentencing reform as an issue, is it? It's like there is so much uh, chaos, nonsense, and humanity being stripped of all in all just normal people. It feels uh, that, that many, you know, that have made mistakes. Granted, we're not saying that, you know, we're implying innocence by any means in this conversation, but it's just, what are we doing here, right? Taking 25 oh, years away from someone. Take even, even 18 months away from you for, yeah. it just, it feels so horrifying. And uh, I, I, the, it, it drain, it simultaneously just drains me, but like it, it is, it moves me to, to act in, in what small way well, I look, can. Well, here's why I was excited. I mean, I was excited to meet you and talk to you no matter what. But I, I, I told you this in our email exchange. But, you know, I read the FAM newsletter every month because one of, one of the guys I hung out with subscribed to it. So he always got it in the mail. And so he would pass it around. So I've known, I've been familiar with, with FAM for a long time. And, um, you know, I get, I am a vocal person. <laughs> so, and I do get a chance to be on stages around the world. You know, I speak on Tony Robbins stages. I, I've spoken at more than a hundred fortune 500 companies. I, you know, I talk about sports and adventure and sobriety and addiction and prison and goal setting and mindset and all of these things. And Almost always, I will take at least a minute to get on my soapbox and talk about um, our incredibly unfair, uh, and I wish people cared more about fairness, but the fact is they don't. Yeah. So what I actually talk about all the time is fiscal responsibility. And um, while I don't have all that many conservative friends anymore, um when I do engage in a conversation uh, with someone who tends to be more of a tough on crime, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time kind of nonsense, what I will do is switch gears. And instead of expecting them to uh, think about humanity, the humanity of the person that we're talking about, the human life that has been essentially impacted forever, what I will say to them is, you know, take a 19-year-old black kid, especially uh, people of color, but the same would apply to a white kid too, but, but in particular, it happens so much more to people of color. Take that kid, and let's say he is dealing drugs. He's, you know, maybe he even, you know, uh, threatened somebody or robbed somebody or he did all that. And I'm not condoning any of that, but you give him a five-year sentence mm -hmm. and a felony or a couple of felonies on his record. So, and you, and he gets no treatment, <laughs> especially in the federal system. There's no, like, if it's drug related, like you don't get any, there's only one, here's the treatment you get in the federal system for drug. You know, they call it, you, you get to go to this program that's six months and you can get a little bit of time knocked off or it's nine months. You can get a little time knocked off of your sentence. But the drug education program, it's not AA. It doesn't have anything to do with actually helping you deal if you actually have a drug problem. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It basically, it can be summed up this simple way. You're a burden on society and your family. Don't do drugs. Like, that's it. 
that's what the program is. It's a it's a program of shame and a beatdown, basically. I can hear and, Nancy Reagan just, uh, in my yeah. high, kindergarten class just say no. You know, yeah. <laughs> like as well, but here's and, and here's the big point I make to to uh, again the people who want to take the stance that you know it's society has to have rules and whatever. I'm like I I get that, but that same 19 year old kid he gets out after five years. Now he's got a felony. Guess what? We, the taxpayers, are going to fund him probably for the rest of his life because he's going to be on public assistance of some type because he can't get a decent job. He may not be able to get into college or even a community college or something like that because of the felony. Like that felony is going to create all kinds of issues mm -hmm. that have the side effects of meaning he is going to have to be supported by every public program out there in order just to live. And the millions of dollars that we as taxpayers will end up paying because he doesn't he's not going to have insurance. So when he gets hurt and goes to the hospital or when all these other things happen in life, he has no safety net. We, the taxpayers, pay for it. So instead of giving that kid multiple chances. Sending them to treatment, which which all the statistics say a dollar spent on treatment will save ten dollars in incarceration later. So you, it's it's not like we're doing him some huge favors. We're doing ourselves a big favor by giving that kid multiple chances to actually have a diversionary program. I'm not saying it's a free pass. I'm saying it's something that allows him to not have a record to actually do something that will help him, help society. And look, if he screws it up, I don't know what the number is, but if it's three or four times and it keeps happening, then I understand there comes a point where maybe there has to be some, you know, some incarceration. But to do it so quickly and get someone into the system, and this is the last of my soapbox, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the fact of the matter is, it's a business. Anybody who thinks anything other than that, this is a business with lobbyists and politicians who get paid hundreds of millions of dollars every year to keep things the way they are because big pharma, the hospital systems, the jails and prisons, the these food supply are, chain. I mean, yep, these guys, right? Like it's well, and phone companies try talking to somebody in prison. It's three dollars a friggin' minute to talk mm -hmm. to somebody. You know, when out here on this thing, I pay $100 a month and I could literally stay on this phone 24 hours a day, all day for a whole month. And it would still just cost me $100. Mm -hmm. Like, so people are profiting hugely off incarceration and there's no incentive for lawmakers to stop putting people in prison. So it's all a bunch of bullshit to even think that they have any uh, motivation or incentive you know, to do that. So when we, when we look at this problem logically, it's never going to change until the system of a politician being able to take money from a lobbyist who happens to work for a food service company that provides tens of millions of dollars worth of shitty, um, out of date, like I ate more jars of out of date peanut butter and like stuff that that was well past the expiration date, it was probably fine. But, you know, the reason they get that is they can buy it for 10 cents on the dollar and then resell it in the prison system 
uh, because who's going to listen? Who's going to care whether or not an inmate's eating, you know, peanut butter that's a year past its expiration date? Yeah. In fact, I'll bet you there's someone who's going to make money selling you the drugs, uh, selling the drugs to the prison that's going to fix your food poisoning, no right? Doubt. Like, uh, no doubt. yeah, it absolutely infuriating. I mean, the uh, prison labor industrial complex. Uh, yeah. We have an amendment, the 13th Amendment, which uh, says, you know, no, slavery is legal except yeah. as a form of punishment after a crime, right? Except for unless you're a prison. Um, well, in my, in my prison, we were support for people who were there for long term. You know, we were support for a chair manufacturing company in the area. So it made oh, yeah. like, you know, office chairs. Mm-hmm. But it was a it was a good job, you know, compared to the 35 cents an hour that I got working in the recreation department at the prison, you know, you could make like a dollar and a half at the chair place, which if you're in long term, you know, if you're locked up in prison long term and you get 40 hours a week at a dollar 50 an hour or whatever it was, um, which, by the way, they'd be paying twenty dollars an hour to regular folks, you know, that mm-hmm. that. So you just said it, you know, it's basically just just legal slavery. Indeed. Is what it is. So nobody's going to stop that because that chair manufacturing company spends, you know, a million dollars a year on politicians to make sure that they continue to vote for things to stay the status quo. You know, uh, one of the stories we did an episode with uh, Chris Wilson, uh, Mm -hmm. my master plan, um, great friend of the show. And he uh, I told him this story about how uh, when I first got involved with fame, I would sit down with someone who did significant time for a, a conspiracy to, to sell crack cocaine. And uh, he, uh, he we were talking, he saw a picture of me in my uniform in the army. He's like, oh, I made those patches for Alcor. I was like, Are you kidding? <laughs> and uh, he was just like, yeah. And I, was like, how? and I asked him, so just out of curiosity, how much were you getting paid to make this patch? And he said something to the extent of like 30 cents an hour Uh, and we're not 30 cents an hour folks like that's legit and uh i had one two three four five of those patches on my uniform at any given time if not more when i put on body armor or stuff like that and uh i probably paid six bucks for each one of them yeah he was making them like 30 an hour or something like that sorry like he could make like a pack of i think actually 20 an hour so you just think about the margins these companies are able to capture it's just asinine um, so anybody, I guess that to sum it up, anybody who's looking for logic, you know, if you're not, if you don't look at the numbers and the money, then, you know, we're, we're, I travel all over the world. And the joke that I always make is that at least in, in Africa and China and places like that, they have the decency to take their bribes under the table. <laughs> like, you know, because here we just allow politicians to take essentially unlimited amounts of money from private institutions and we pretend like it's for nothing yeah. or they they pretend like it. And it's 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 criminal. It's uh, it's damaging mostly to the human beings who are most greatly affected. You know, you know this well a million times over, you know, prison was meant for people, as Jim Webb said many years ago uh, from Virginia, the senator from Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. it's meant for for people we're afraid of, not people we're mad at. And, you know, and it, it got turned into a business and industry years ago. And the fact is, even someone like like me, which sounds weird to say about myself, when you're in prison, you're forgotten. I mean, even even me, who had a fair amount of notoriety, a lot of friends, a lot of whatever, like I people just disappeared. You know, they you're you're just you are forgotten when you're in there. Yeah. 
I mean, and I got to tell you, Charlie, it's it's really cathartic. I've heard a lot of people speak passionately about prisons and sentencing reform. Uh, to see someone who is like an, a, a world class athlete uh, say these things that are coming out of your mouth is like super fucking energizing, man. Like I got to tell you, yeah. it, it's it it, fe- it it's I, there are few moments where in this. Uh, in this sort of effort that I really think I feel heard. And when someone with your stature and platform is sending that message, I, I know that I speak for a lot of folks affiliated with this community uh, that, well, thank you for using your platform yeah. to, to spread the, the word. Well, it's my pleasure. And I need to do a better job of it. But, you know, one step at a time. Well, you know, I mean, this, your story, it's, I mean, you could go in so many directions, man. Like I said, this is the hardest interview I've had to prepare for. Addiction racing and athleticism. I mean, we could have gone in direction of health. You're a vegetarian, uh, you know, your training regimen and your philosophies there. We could have gone down that. We could have gone down through the unfairness of the fallout of the financial crisis and how it was unevenly distributed to the people who didn't actually do anything wrong. And then, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about prison reform. Um, You chose to write a memoir and your story is beautiful. It's poetic. By the way, sidebar, you're a brilliant writer. Thank you. I mean, you're the highest compliment you can pay me. Seriously. The, uh, I'm not trying to generalize, but I've read a lot of uh, memoirs by people who are not professional storytellers mm-hmm. that they need a lot of help. They, yeah. you know, they get the point across and it's still a, a nice story, but your writing is fantastic. Thank you. Clearly well Seriously. thought. I mean, it means a lot. I, I, I love it when people say, oh, you're a good runner and whatever. And that's, that's all well and good. But when you, when you, and I'm, I take pride in my writing, you know, my mom was a writer and, you know, I, um, I approach this book in a way that I I look at it cinematically in a way I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have stories in there that would, you know, keep the reader engaged and let them really visualize what was happening, but also not stay in one place for too long. Yeah. The, joke always, the joke I always make is, "I like I'm sober by page like 60. So you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not stuck in a drunkalog with me, uh, where you're, you know, I'm taking you down all these. I give you just enough of yeah. my history that you understand. Yeah, this guy's got some issues. Um, and you're also not just boring me like 120 miles between Badlands and three, 4,000 miles in the desert versus Ecuador. Like you could also bore us with like the monotony of endurance racing, but you don't do that either. Um, thank you. It's such a great gripping, vivid book. But that being said, when you sat down to write this thing, you had to understand that everything from adventure racing, addiction and prison reform, these are, let's be face it inaccessible to the average mm. reader. People, sure. the vast majority of us don't have experience mm. in any of these places. So yeah. what is it that you were hoping to kind of crystallize? What, what is it that you were hoping your readers were going to take away? Like yeah. what was that crystallization yeah. moment that you wanted them yeah, to Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a actually very simple. You know, what happens to you isn't nearly as important as what you do about it. <laughs> I mean, it's not actually more complicated than that. People get mired in um what happened to us you know and 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 how the action that we take next you know what comes after that what decisions we make how we approach what comes next is it makes all you know it makes all the difference and and look i you know when i think about uh 
my life experience leading up to that period of time, the, the whatever trauma I had, whatever it was that led me, you know, to prison, I also ended up with a tremendous amount of, you know, perspective. I would say this, I drove around and I ask audiences, I have literally asked an audience of 5,000 people this question. I drove around the United States for 10 years from the time I was 20 to 29, buying crack in every major city in this country on the street, driving my white Toyota 4Runner through every major city. Why do you think I was never stopped or arrested or anything during that entire time? Someone, some brave person in the audience will always finally yell out, because you're white. <laughs> and, and I'm like, exactly. <laughs> you know, and so I recognize the irony in a way of the fact that I spent 10 years doing things that were technically illegal. It's not like I, I mean, whatever, I wasn't hurting people. But I mean, I was doing an illegal act. I was buying, you know, cocaine or crack on the street, it was for personal use, whatever. I wasn't reselling it, which again mm-hmm. is a whole nother issue. Um, but, you know, I was still doing something. Late. But I was never, you know, I was never stopped. And so, uh, you know, it's a big inequity. And in, in mm-hmm. prison in uh, West Virginia, you know, you had two very distinct groups. I mean, I it was the first time there's 500 men in this prison, pretty equally split between black and white. And like most of, the black guys were, everybody was there for drugs. I mean, that's the way every federal prison is. It's yeah. 80% are there for some sort of drug related charge. Um, and so, uh, you know, the black guys were almost all dealers or got stuck with some sort of a kingpin uh, um, label um, or got caught up in a conspiracy. The white guys actually, at least in West Virginia, were way more tended to be actual addicts, like they were meth, you know, meth addicts, um, you know, so you, most of the white guys in there were West Virginia and Virginia, you know, drug addicts, actual drug addicts. Most of the black guys were Baltimore, I mean, from all over the place, but like, you know, and they were more drug dealers. So it was really interesting to witness all of this firsthand because the, the treatment is is not really the same. I mean, there's no help for anybody, but it was a it was a real look into who is actually in there and and why are they there. And my and finally, I'll say on this, my first cellmate, Cody, um, got a ten year sentence for buying a single bag of weed from uh, a dealer, and that dealer happened to be under federal surveillance, is all it was, and he had about ten pounds of weed in his basement the dealer, not Cody. Cody goes and buys a bag of weed, probably not the first one, a few of them, and he's under surveillance. And they ended up charging like 20 people in this big conspiracy. But the way the law works, they were able to charge all 20 of those people with all of the weight. So each of those people got charged with the 10 pounds of weed, even if they only bought you know, a tiny little baggie, because that's the way conspiracy laws work in the U.S. So they all got these. And then he had a broken shotgun in his uh, hall closet, and that added five more years. So he got five years for the drugs. You know, he's 24 years old and just a 
he was just a normal kid in Virginia buying some wheat, which yeah. is now legal. <laughs> Good God, man. I, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, we, we, you talked a little bit about, you know, how you talk to a tough on crime conservative and you take a, uh, uh, kind of you position it on the fiscal side of the house, fiscal responsibility, something yeah. I'm, you know, when I go and, and advocate and lobbies uh, on other tough on crime, they, they and, and I'll, I'll generalize, they tend to be on the conservative side of the house. I actually am now pointing to the, their same hatred and fear of what is called the administrative state, mm-hmm. uh, basically a behemoth government that's really not elected, not at the win, not serving the people, but entrenched bureaucrats that are sort of making policies somewhat on their own instincts and emotions. Uh, like if you get annoyed of that, regulating the EPA, regulating the housing and urban development, regulating our defense ind- d- defense policy, why on earth are you okay with the, them regulating criminal justice yeah. and prisons and sentencing po- policy here in the United States? It's like, it's the same behemoth that you yeah. hate when you talk about the administrative state. Uh, and I mean, that right there is a case in point example, yeah. right? Uh, and especially your story where a prosecutor literally just got interested in you because of your platform. Mm-hmm. Like, how the heck does this guy under mis- misrepresent his, his income and sending you to prison for, for 18 months? It's, it's just devastating. Uh, so as we close up here, I, I, what projects or issues are you working on now for those of us who want to stay engaged with you, support you? And, uh, I would love to know where we can, uh, where we can find you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, my website is the best place and it's just charlieengel.com. Um, social media stuff is on there too, but I, you know, look, I will say, and I think this is an important point, you know, people will ask often, you know, how I've managed to sort of re not just reclaim my life, but actually, you know, make it better in a lot of ways than it was before prison. And, and, and a lot of that does come with, I recognized a long time ago that we, we all care about ourselves way more than we care about other people. That's just human nature, right? So, you know, we, we think that other people are thinking about us way more than they actually are. So I got out of prison and I don't ever step on a stage today when I don't talk about addiction and prison and adventure. Like I talk about all these things because I don't want anybody to ever like Google my name and say, well, wait, he didn't tell us this part, right? I want them to know because the fact of the matter is what I actually know is they don't even, they don't actually care that much. Like it doesn't stop me from speaking for Fortune 500 financial services companies. They're actually my best clients. Oh man. And so people, you know, again, you, you know, I think it's about owning your own narrative. And I say this partly because anybody out there who has someone incarcerated right now, which is a huge percentage of people, frankly, um, we all know the statistics about the United States and incarceration, but like, you know, it's, they can reclaim their lives. It's not about getting past this period of incarceration. It's about how can I use this to actually help me? In fact, how can I, how can I take the power of this narrative and this comeback story that we all have buried inside us and turn it into something else? And so, um, you know, I use it for advocacy in a lot of places, but I also have another huge project. And this one came to me while I was in prison. You know, I had been on this like never ending roller coaster of, of highs and lows and 
to mind or maybe more extreme even than a lot of people's. And I had the thought while I was locked up, I actually taught myself to meditate. And during a meditation, the idea that I wanted to go uh, literally from the lowest place on the planet to the highest point on the planet came to me. And I started in there, went to the library in prison, and I got out an atlas, uh, which it's hard to get because they don't like people to have access to maps while you're in prison. Oh, okay. <laughs> As if you're going to, I don't know what, escape to, you know, Russia or something. Good but anyway, I started looking at these maps and, and I started mapping this route to go from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the planet, to the top of Mount Everest, the highest point on the planet. And so in January of 2025, I will begin this journey to go from the Dead Sea. And I'll, I'll literally, I'll, I'll kayak across the Dead Sea and I'm going to do a free dive in the middle of the Dead Sea um, to the lowest place I can reach. Hopefully I'll come back up. Otherwise, it'll be like the shortest expedition in history. And by the way, wait, um, the Dead Sea is like, the salt is so dense that you yeah. can like literally just float in it, right? Yeah, well, to get under the surface of the water will take about 80 additional pounds of weight oh uh, on my body. And so, and I'm not a free diver. So this is all, this yeah. is all like, you know, it's a good example though of making calculated risk decisions. You know, I don't, have a desire to die, you know, it's not what I'm trying to do. But I like to remind people that you can spend your life preparing and never doing. Yeah. And that's, I think that's most people's biggest problem is, you, you know, you don't want to be reckless, but you also don't want to, you know, over plan to such a degree that it stops you from ever actually embarking on the journey. And that could be a metaphor for almost anything. So <laughs> can, I, can I just... So sure. you're going to put on 80 pounds of weight, Yeah, jump into the Dead Sea, fall. I'm going to kayak across. So yeah, halfway across, I'm going to jump you, out of the kayak. And you're going to hold your breath. Yes. And then the minute you start feeling like you want to let it go, I'm sure you're going to train. You're going to hit some level of depth or you're just going to cut the weight yep. and then swim back up to the top? Are you going to have any flotation or any uh, sort of... Correct. I mean, look, we're not talking about 300 feet for me or something like a world record. You know, I'm probably going to go... I'd love to go 100 feet. It's probably going to end up being 50 to 75. But if I can get down <laughs> that far, it would be great. I mean, one of the things I learned during COVID was actually doing breath work. So, you know, I can hold my breath for about five minutes now. And oh, yeah. it's, it's a skill that, you know, I really learned through... But it's different to hold your breath sitting in your, you know, spare bedroom uh, and hold your breath while you're 75 feet underwater. So there's a uh, there's a much different effect there. But, you know, I'll come back up and I'll continue across the Dead Sea and I'll get to Jordan and I'll start running and I'll, I'll run uh, across the Arabian Desert a couple thousand miles um, to basically to like the tip of Oman. And when I get to the tip of Oman, I'll get in a in a boat and row across the Indian Ocean, and I'll be going to your country of birth. So I'll I'll row across just north of Mumbai, um, and I'll get on a mountain bike in Mumbai, India, and and make my way across uh, India to Western Nepal, um, having a little stopover with the Dalai Lama along the way, and yeah, and. Uh, it's already set Hell and yeah. I'll continue on to Everest base camp. And from there, it's just a couple of miles to the top. So, 
couple more um, <laughs> it's nothing nothing big you know you know and it's just it, look man it's just this idea of uh and this is you know i got out of prison in august of 2012 right so it's been now you know uh 11 years since i got out and uh it's taken this long for that idea you know i've been close a couple of times 2020 was all planned and we all know what happened in 2020 um you know everything went out the window with covid and i lost all the sponsors and uh everything else and and um you know and this is just the next step in my journey i just turned 61 and um i i think part of the issue is you know i'm a big believer in physical movement and um everything begins with physical movement every every source of happiness and well-being and understanding and you know you can spend your life no matter what's happened to you you can spend your life being victim re-victimizing yourself by staying mired in the unfairness of your situation or you can just get on with it and you know getting on with with it means you know using your story to further what it is you want to do instead of being ashamed and hiding it. Even if you've done, you know, something, you know, I don't want to use the word terrible, but like, even if you've done a crime, if you're somebody getting out of prison and you've, you've done something that, you know, maybe you deserved a little time and, you know, away from society, but own that, own it, own it, <laughs> own it, get on with it. There's a lot of people out there that are willing to give people chances. And it's, and it's really just, um, it's way easier just to be upfront and honest about your situation and, um, trust that the universe is going to help guide you to the place where you need to be. Well, that was our show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, would you consider please rating us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, those ratings help us out a ton. Also, consider going to 99pages.club, C-L-U-B, and joining our email list. Each month, I send out just two emails, one promoting our most recent podcast interview, but a second with some book recommendations for your nonfiction reading list. So far, the reviews have been really great. People like getting those unique reads on their list that they otherwise would not have found. So that's 99pages.club, C-L-U-B. Thanks, and we will be back very soon.